0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported.
1: Community Radio for South Central Indiana.
2: Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young.
0: And I'm Noel Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, November fifteenth, twenty 2023.
2: Later in the program, WFHB News continues its coverage into the proposed expansion of the Charles C. Dean Wilderness Area in the latest episode of Deep Dive. WFHB and Limestone Post investigate.
0: Also coming up in the next half hour, artificial grandchildren on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB more in the bottom half of our program. But first, the latest edition of Deep Dive.
2: This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. We are looking into the Hoosier National Forest and the Charles C. Dean Wilderness Area within it. Last week, we explored recent legislation introduced by Senator Mike Braun, which would expand the boundaries of the wilderness area. This week, we dive deeper into the history of the land and what it was before it was a wilderness area.
0: During our research on the history of the Hoosier National Forest, one thing we noticed is that most of the history centers around European settlers. The U.S. Forest Service does acknowledge that there were people living here before the colonists, but does not go into much detail about who, when, and where. We were curious to learn more about what the Hoosier National Forest was like before there was a wilderness area, and before what the Forest Service dubs the pioneer era. To learn more, we spoke with Indiana University Professor of History and Native American and Indigenous Studies, David Nichols. My name
3: is David Nichols, and I'm a professor of history and Native American and Indigenous Studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. I'm a specialist in Native North American history and in the history of early America.
2: Nichols shared with us a history lesson surrounding the North American indigenous peoples and cultures that have lived in Indiana and surrounding
3: areas. There are many places to begin, the story of Native people in in Indiana. Um, The Miamis, for instance, say that they have always been here and that they originated from what they call the coming out place, which is the headwaters, or rather the mouth of the St. Joseph River, where it Empties into Lake Michigan. Archaeologists have determined that human beings were present in North America by about, I believe, 20,000 years ago, if not earlier, is, are, the most, um, are the oldest currently accepted findings. And ethnohistorians, that is to say, people who study the history of indigenous people, estimate that there were people in southern Indiana by about 14,000 years ago. And most likely, the first human beings in Indiana entered the boundaries of the modern state from the south because the northern part of Indiana was still covered with glaciers uh, until about 10,000 years ago. So the, the state was sort of settled by people from south to north. And for much of the period Up until about 3,000 years ago, uh, the native population in Indiana was semi-sedentary, which means they they would live in one particular uh, people would live in one particular site for a few months, and then they would move uh, to others. uh, And had a blended economy based on fish, on hunting, mostly small game. And on the gathering of wild plant foods, and this this would become uh, or would remain somewhat typical of indigenous and actually early white settler diets uh, in the region until about um, really the 19th century. By about 3,500 years ago, some of the native people in Indiana were beginning to farm. They were cultivating what are called North American cultivars or North American domestic plants, namely sunflowers and squash. Uh, And then about 1,500 years ago, uh, people in the Midwest began to acquire and cultivate maize, or corn, which is seen as the archetypal Native American uh, farmed plant. But it spread from Mesoamerica to the rest of the the continent, and uh, the spread to this region was relatively slow because uh, Native people had to develop varieties that would grow with a, a shorter in a shorter growing season, with with, with fewer frost-free days, uh, so agriculture comes to the Great Lakes region uh, late by North American standards, uh, but much earlier than historians who merely focus on the white population of, of the Midwest would would guess. Uh, that is to say, about fifteen hundred years ago.
2: Nickel shared both the Miami's origin story and a historian's research on just how far back the Miami have lived here.
3: I think it's important to teach both of those origin stories. It is not always easy to reconcile them with one another, Um, but I don't think they're entirely incompatible insofar as the Miami creation story isn't attached to a particular timeline Um, and isn't intended, I think, to create a chronology. It's intended, rather, to say, this is where we're from, We have, and this is what we have a particular connection to, which is the waters of Indiana. Um, the Miami name means downstream people, and I suspect that that is because, or rather that refers to their pattern of settlement in the proto-historic period, from the headwaters of the Miami up in present-day Fort Wayne, Uh, down to approximately present-day Vincennes, or a little further south.
2: He talks more about the Miami peoples later, but first, we're going to go back even further in time. The earliest evidence of human towns and settlements in the Midwest goes back to when the Adena, Hopewell, and Mississippian societies inhabited the region.
3: There were four settled cultures in Indiana and in the lower Midwest uh, to which archaeologists have attached particular names, usually based on what are called archaeological type sites. I.e., this is where this is the name of the site where we first began to examine, the, where we modern archaeologists began to examine the culture. The first two of those were the Adena and the Hopewell cultures, both of which were centered in the Upper Ohio Valley, but which had communities in southern Indiana, uh, and they were distinguished at least by archaeologists, by building uh, large burial mounds and uh, earthen structures, sometimes in the form of animals, uh, effigy mounds, as as they're called. Following the Hopewell culture, the Ohio and Mississippi Valleys were uh, settled by a—or rather, they were culturally dominated by a culture called the Mississippian culture. And the Mississippians built very large settlements, some of which um, we can only call cities, because they had up to ten or 15,000 people living in them. If you've been to western Indi- Illinois and visited the Cahokia State Park uh, mm-hmm. and UNESCO Heritage Site, you will have been to the site of the largest of these cities. The Mississippians, or, or one of their groups, or one of their um, communities, uh built a large town here in Indiana, southern Indiana, which is now called Angel Mound, after the family that originally owned the farm where the excavations took place. And like other Mississippian communities, Angel Mound seems to have been a large town with about a thousand people. So small by Mississippian standards, but, but pretty large by, by town standards uh, in the pre-modern era. Uh, with temple platforms, and with a number of subordinate farming villages in the area that provided food uh, to the to the community, which implies that in Angel Mounds there were also there was also a specialization of labor and people who were not just farmers but also warriors, priests, craft people. Uh, we estimate that Angel Mounds, as a community, lasted for quite some time, about 400 years.
2: Nichols explained that there was a Little Ice Age that historians believe pushed people to move further south. This little ice age, which marked a period of regional cooling, especially in the North Atlantic region, took place from the early 1300s to around 1850.
3: And the site was probably gradually abandoned in around 1400 CE, so about 600 years ago, uh, most likely due to climatic stresses that accompanied the little ice age. And um, if you're... Listeners aren't familiar with that. That's a period of of much lower average temperatures um, that uh, gripped the northern hemisphere from about 1300 CE to about 1800, so actually for a very long time. And uh, there were several periods or several lengthy multi decade periods during the Little Ice Age where global temperatures actually fell quite low uh, and caused a number of crises in, in Europe, among other places. So it's, it's likely that one of those periods of depressed temperatures and increased drought um, made communities like Angel Mounds less viable. We know that there was at least one sort of late Mississippian culture in Indiana after Angel Mounds was mostly abandoned. I say mostly because people probably still went there to perform ceremonial functions. And that last culture was, is called the Cabornes. Well-born culture by archaeologists, and that was uh, a culture whose members lived mostly in small villages, but they seemed to have been bound together into some kind of, of confederacy. Uh, so there were, in short, um, fairly substantial settlements uh, in southern Indiana from about 3,000 years uh, before present uh, until the beginning. Well, really, until the present day, mm-hmm. and uh, there were intensive farmers in the region as early as 3,500 years ago, but certainly by the time that uh, mid- native Midwesterners began to adopt, uh, adopt corn and beans cultivation about 1,500 years
0: ago. Nichols shared that later in the 17th and 18th century, four main groups of peoples settled themselves in southern Indiana, the Miami, the Shawnee, the Delaware, and the Potawatomi. Historically,
3: there were four native groups. Uh, land claims and or settlements in southern Indiana, and some of them also had uh, settlements and land claims in northern Indiana. Uh, the Miamis were probably the most widespread, and well, the historian Stephen Warren um, posits or hypothesizes that they originated, the Miamis may have originated with a culture called the Fort Ancients in southeastern Indiana, Um, which is not to say that their own story about originating from the coming out place from the the, uh, waters of the St. Joseph River in Lake Michigan is incorrect. Both things could be true, just at different points on the timeline. But in any event, if if Warren's hypothesis is correct, it means that the Miamis were, and their ancestors were in Indiana at least six or 700 years ago and probably Um, They settled the Wabash River Valley pretty, as I say, pretty much from the headwaters all the way down to the mouth, uh, uh, where the confluence of the Wabash and Ohio Rivers is, um, by the end of the 17th century, and there were, I would say, several dozen towns and villages in the Miami uh, Confederacy, which included two other Native groups that were Miami, but which whites often identified as belonging to other nations, and those were the Weas, uh, who resided kind of in the central Wabash Valley between Lafayette and Terre Haute, and then the Pianca Shaws who resided uh, further south towards them. the south. Um, the second nation with settlements and land claims in southern Indiana were the Lenape or Delawares, and they were migrants from the modern Delaware and Hudson River Valley on the East Coast, their ancestors were essentially driven to migrate first to Western Pennsylvania and then to Ohio, and then to the White River Valley of of Indiana by white settlers. Mm -hmm. So they arrived in the region um, a bit later than other Native people and uh, settled in Indiana largely to, to try to acquire some kind of refuge. Uh, from combative and occasionally murderous uh, white settlers. And the Delawares mostly settled in the White River Valley, so they they may have had the most substantial towns in southern Indiana um, in the early 19th century. A third group that settled all through the state, including in southwestern Indiana, were the Shawnees. They originated most likely culturally in the upper Ohio Valley. They were almost certainly descended from the Fort Ancient culture that I mentioned. Uh, Then underwent a period of migration from about the 17th through the 18th century, during which many of them moved to the southeast. In fact, the name Shawnee means southerner. And then in the second half of the 18th century, Shawnee people, Shawnee um, bands, began to return to the Ohio Valley to settle, usually with the Miami, um, in villages in Indiana. And the fourth uh, group that has territorial claims in southern Indiana, although most of their settlements were in the north, were the Potawatomi. And um, they were the largest Native American community in or Native American nation in Indiana by population at the time of. And in fact, the Potawatomi in Indiana uh, continued to harvest wild rice until the removal era. Uh, and there are efforts now by Potawatomi scholars to try to determine where the wild rice uh, stands that they harvested were, because they mostly been drained
0: mm-hmm. uh, for agriculture
3: in the 19th and 20th centuries.
0: Nichols shared that European colonists arrived on the scene in the early 18th century.
3: The first yep. Europeans arrive in Indiana. Uh, in the 18th century or a little before, and those those are predominantly French fur traders, uh, some of whom intermarry with Native families, uh, and some French missionaries, although um, there are not any substantial mission settlements or, or um, Christianized settlements outside of Vincennes uh, prior to the time of the American Revolution. There are, there are Native people who are Christian converts, at least nominally, uh, but there aren't any large mission settlements like there were in, in New Mexico or Canada. Um, the Shawnees begin to establish their settlements in the state, or perhaps I should say re-establish, because they were probably Port ancient people, Shawnee ancestors, uh, in present-day Indiana before uh, 1400. Uh, but the Shawnees begin to reestablished settlements in Indiana no later than, I think, the 1790s, which is about the time that Delawares begin to establish townships on the White River. Uh, And then the Potawatomi have a fairly large number of villages and towns in northern Indiana before 1800. I believe that the first Potawatomi settlements in northern Indiana date to at least the 17th century, Um, but some may have explored the region beforehand that they were part of the Anishinaabe who, by their own telling, uh, migrated to the Great Lakes region about 700 years ago. Um, so the, there wouldn't have been Potawatomi in Indiana before that, at least not according to their own uh, story. And I don't think that archaeological there's archaeological
0: The American Revolution, the new U.S. government started to take the land and sell it, removing Native Americans from the land they lived on.
3: Anyway, by the time of the American Revolution, all four of these Native groups were settled in Indiana or were about to be. And the Revolutionary War established the United States as a new government uh, and a new government that had a at least nominal of the land Native peoples of Indiana had been allies of Great Britain during the War for Independence. So there was a a period of several decades after the American Revolution um, where the United States alternately waged war on Native people in what it again called the Northwest Territory and later called Indiana Territory, uh, and then alternately tried one way or another to finagle land cession treaties, that is to say land surrender treaties. Uh, from Native American nations. And the ultimate outcome of that process was that the United States um, acquired and sold enough Native American land, mostly in the southern part of Indiana, um, to allow white settlers to
0: colonize
3: um, the southern part of the state, pretty much from the latitude of Terre Haute, south, uh, which is where the, the major white settlements in Indiana were right up until, I think, the Civil War. I think the largest town in Indiana actually was Madison down on the Ohio River for, for some decades. 1840 uh, or so. And it was under those treaties the U.S. compelled uh, the Native people in the state who were still there to leave and to move to what the U.S. called Indian Territory, uh, and which we now call the state of Kansas. That was to be the site where the U.S. government would relocate those Native Americans who lived uh, in the old Northwest, whereas Oklahoma, or uh, the southern part of Indian Territory, would be for Native people from the South.
0: Nichols said that although the Miamis were forced to move to Kansas, slowly but surely, many returned to their homeland over time.
3: And I I want to make sure I I bring that up. The Miamis were, or a large number of them, were compelled um, by federal troops, and I think by state militia as well, to leave their remaining communities in northern Indiana in 1846. Uh, The nation had been compelled to sign a, a removal treaty and then had managed to delay removal for a few years. Uh, but then the United States forced uh, a large number of the Miamis to leave Indiana and move to Kansas. And after about a decade or so went by, some of those removed Miamis began to come back in small groups, and, like not surreptitiously, but in small groups so they wouldn't be noticed Indiana. And up until the end of the 19th century, the United States government recognized that there were still Miamis in Indiana and ha- let them have their own agent and their own recognition and then terminated it because it, it only wanted to maintain one Miami recognized Miami government, I think in about 1895. But that is all by way of saying that the number of Miamis in Indiana today, I think, is at least equal to, if not greater than, the number of Miamis or rather that was the case in 1960. Um, today, the, the numbers, I think, are, di- are are different. But there was a period in the 20th century when there were more Miamis in Indiana than in, than in Oklahoma, even though uh, that was supposed to be more than a century after removal. Um, so the U.S. couldn't, as it turned out, effectively prevent uh, at least some Native people from returning to their homeland. And Particularly, uh, found it difficult to prevent native people from returning or staying if they had the resources to go to the same land offices that white settlers were using and buy back part of their land. Um, Hmm. The Pocagon Band of Potawatomi, who reside in southern Michigan, very near the state border, um, bought back or some of them bought back at least some of their lands from the U.S. government in the 1830s, Uh, and when the U.S. government tried to make them remove a state judge in Michigan, uh, Epaphroditus uh, ran, Ransom, um, blocked the order and just said, you can't. They own their land um, by the laws of the United States, not by treaty or any other any other means. And so they're still there. Uh, and in fact, recently, they, uh, the Pocagum Band bought additional land, I think, for their headquarters in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, so there is a recognized that had lands now in Indiana, as well as a recognized Native nation, the Miami, uh, which has a large number of its affiliates, that is to say, the indiana Miamis living here in the Hoosier state.
0: Nichols shared his perspective on wilderness and how the Hoosier National Forest and the Charles C. Deem wilderness area, in his eyes, are not true wilderness areas.
3: I am reluctant to, to call any place in North America certainly a wilderness, just because the That implies that it is a region that human beings have never set foot in, and I suspect that pretty much every square mile, if not every square foot of North America, has seen some type of human activity in the last 20,000-plus years. So I I don't know that there are any authentic wildernesses in North America. Now, the Wilderness Act has its own language. Um, As a historian, I usually confront wilderness as meaning what 17th and 18th century European American colonists meant it to mean what which is to say a land that no human being has ever touched. I don't think there's there's any place in North America of which that can be said to be true. Uh, I think uh, we today our wildernesses are very cultivated, mm-hmm. um, and that, that's part I think of the goal of, of state and national park services, is to create an experience that is both wild uh, making, I mean, and I, I think for native people, that was kind of how they looked at regions that were, that whites would call wilderness. Um, you know, we don't have our settlements here, but we're very familiar with this place. Many of us have been in it. We've given names to the natural features so that we know what they are. We're familiar with uh, the animals that that live there and how dangerous they are actually likely to be, i.e. that coyotes aren't necessarily that dangerous, although Europeans felt differently. Um, so they had a greater familiarity with, with the land and the flora and the fauna that made them look at wilderness as something familiar and indeed to be used and cult- and, in, and almost cultivated, which was not true of the, the less, adap- let, let us say, less adaptive white settlers who came with a greater degree of ignorance.
2: You've been listening to Deep Dive, WFHB, and Limestone Post Investigate read the full article written and photographed by Stephen Higgs. Visit limestonepostmagazine.com. To submit feedback to WFHB, you can email deepdive at wfhb.org.
0: Next, an episode of Better Beware, the weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more.
2: Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio, with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in
1: your pocket. Scammers are always looking for ways to make their swindles work better, and the explosion of artificial intelligence programs, or AI as they're usually called, has handed them a whole new toolbox. A very good example is what's happening to the so-called grandparent scam. That's when you get a phone call that appears to come from a member of your family who's in trouble and needs money urgently. This can be a call from a child or a cousin or a brother or sister, but older people are the most likely targets, so the classic example is a phone call from a grandchild saying they've been arrested and need money for bail or lawyers or they're stranded somewhere and need to buy a plane ticket, or had an accident and need to get their car repaired. Any plausible reason why they are asking for money and need it right away. Of course, they can make the caller ID show the real number of the person they're imitating. Originally, the crook might say, I'm sorry if my voice sounds funny, but I've got a cold, or make some other phony excuse for why they don't sound like they should. Well, now they don't have to do that. If they can find even a tiny clip of the person's voice on a social media post, for example, or even just by calling the grandchild, an AI program can create an amazingly accurate clone of that voice and make it say whatever the scammer wants. Of course, this racket uses the two most famous fraud techniques. They want the victim to act quickly, and they want them to keep the whole thing secret. After all, things like this really do happen, and if it's a real emergency from a real family member, you will want to help. The key to staying safe is always double-check before you act. Some families are setting up ways to identify themselves to each other, like a password or a phrase that is never written down and you can ask for if you get a call. Or there can be security questions, something a real family member would know that a scammer wouldn't, like, what's the name of Uncle Charlie's dog? Or, what's my favorite restaurant, the one we always go to? But even if you haven't set that up, you can check by calling back, call the alleged victim's phone or call other family members and find out if the supposed caller really is where they say they are or are safe and sound at home. Artificial intelligence is breathing new life into this fraud, and it works all too well. If you're a parent or grandparent, you need to watch out, and everybody needs to know about it. Please, spread the word through your family, especially to the oldest members. Double-check before doing anything. That's the way to leave the crooks frustrated and penniless instead of yourself.